Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It is a truism in American politics that the military is subject to civilian control, yet the nature of that relationship remains subject to debate. Military leaders possess specialized knowledge and expertise that deserves respect, even as those military leaders should defer to civilian leadership, who have a broader responsibility to the American public. Recent controversies, however, have shown that a clear dichotomy between politics and the military is neither possible nor desirable. It's not enough to claim that the military should stay outside of politics, since no sensible military advice can be given without an understanding of political context. Similarly, civilian leaders need to understand the military to sensibly discuss policy options and understand the ramifications of their choices. A crucial element here is the role of civilians in civil-military dialogue. As our guest today has written, quote, when we neglect politics in the civil-military relations context, we also neglect civilians. And as a consequence, neither military personnel nor many civilian defense leaders know how to manage the intersections of partisan politics and military policies. So what should military and civilian leaders do to better understand and manage those intersections? Do the answers lie in structural reforms or intellectual reconsiderations or both? Those are some of the questions we will consider with today's guest, Dr. Alice Hunt Friend. Dr. Alice Hunt Friend is Vice President for Research and Analysis at the Institute for Security and Technology. She is a defense policy expert and has served in several civilian roles in the Pentagon. Most recently, she was the Deputy Chief of Staff to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, where she aligned staff operations to the Deputy Secretary's priorities, including technological innovation, enterprise data management and transparency, program and budget reviews, climate change resilience, and workforce health equity and inclusion. We have been trying to get Dr. Friend on this program for a while, and I am delighted that we've managed to do it today. So welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Alice Hunt Friend. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. That's right. And, and uh, for, for the record, right, the problem is, was uh, was organizational on my part, not on Alice's part that uh, <laughs> hasn't been on the program yet. But anyway, what do Americans inside and outside of government misunderstand about civil-military relations? Well, I think misunderstanding presupposes that they think about it very much. Ah. And I think most Americans, um, because it is on one level quite fundamental to our democracy, but on another level, not something that even the average voter, let alone just the average person, really has to think about on a regular basis or is even pressed to think about on a regular basis. Um, it's not even really part of sort of not just civics education, which we all, um, uh, you know, complain that uh, there's not enough of anymore. But even in sort of basic American history classes and so forth, right, 
that isn't really part of how we study the Constitution. It's not part of how we study American history. Um, so your average American, I think, doesn't know or think very much about civil relations. So it's not even a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. It's just a gap for them. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, you know, I think that's okay. Um, the real issue is, is the misunderstanding at the elite levels, at the levels of folks actually participating in government. Um, and that's really the population that I focus on. There are a bunch of scholars and practitioners that worry a lot about um, civil relations in the military and society uh, context. And I really look at sort of secretaries of defense, other senior political appointees at the Pentagon, members of Congress, presidents and their immediate staffs, you know, what do they understand? And it's there where the misunderstanding gets alarming because, um, as I say in the article you were citing, um, the fundamental value that civilians bring to the civil-military relationship is expertise in politics and allowing themselves to take on political and particularly partisan political questions so that the military doesn't either have to or or does not choose to. Mm -hmm. This I think is is gets at one of the one of the big issues, right? When people talk about being apolitical, mm. there's a, um often right the implication is that politics is this bad thing that gets in the way of rational decision making, right? Because heck, even politicians will claim to not be interested in politics. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is which gets at a you know, a, you know even a bigger right miss or uh, or lack of understanding that uh, politics is is a value neutral term or should be a value neutral term right politics is the process of reaching policy decisions and yet where do you think we got to this idea that politics is bad and that somehow a being apolitical is a is a virtue for professionals. Yeah. So there's sort of two big streams going on. <clears throat> one of them I'm an expert in and one of them I am not. So I just observe that other stream just as an American. That other stream, of course, is politics in general getting a bad rap. And that's been going on for decades. You could probably point back to the Watergate scandal um, and the kind of disillusionment with domestic politics of the 70s. Um, you know, but probably, you know, generations before that would have their own complaints. So I think I sort of leave to um, historians like you to, to be better at explaining how those trend lines have have uh, peaked and valued. Yeah, I'm going to get right on that, Alice. Yeah, great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on the military and the civil military side, um, you know, we really can point to the post-World War II both theoretical concept of what it means to be a military professional, but also the way that military uh, professionals themselves and practitioners have interpreted that theory and, you know, simplified it quite a bit and taken on this idea that the military is apolitical and therefore um, uh, politics itself is something antithetical to the kinds of values that we uh, want our military institutions and our military services to have. Mm -hmm. So a false dichotomy has grown up over the years between politics and 
um, the kind of selfless service that we expect, particularly out of the all-volunteer force of which, again, late 1970s, sort of that's, you know, any historians out there, present company included, who want to sort of like look at that era uh, and forward. And I do note that the 50th anniversary of the AVF is coming up and a bunch of us um, are getting ready to to talk about that quite a lot. But this this idea, which, you know, starts really with Sam Huntington, that civilians in the military occupied two separate spheres and that to be a military professional, you have to stay entirely out of politics, um, is both Im- not practicable and also, as Elliot Cohn showed us 20 years ago in Supreme Command, it also presupposes that the military gets a level of autonomy from politics that is, again, antithetical to the purpose of having a military. If you are a good Klaus Witzian, you believe that war is politics by other means, which means that the politicians are allowed to engage in any level of warfare because they are engaging in politics, and that a good military professional has to grapple with that fact. But we live in a context where we think the professional military is not supposed to have any overlap with politics, right? And so as Risa Brooks really brilliantly showed a couple of years ago in an international security article, um, the Journal of International Security, I should say, um, this just is irrational because the military is a political actor just by virtue of existing in the government as a bureaucracy, having a very large budget, and having being involved in major questions of the use of force and war, right? These are big political questions. So you can't sort of dispense military advice at a really high level and not be engaging with politics. Certainly, you have to engage with politicians themselves. And so this is a fact of life, and yet our our scholarly theories don't really give us enough to go on to figure out how to deal with that. And even though we've come a long way since Sam Huntington, as practitioners in particular, there's still a lot of like stuck in the mud about the Huntingtonian objective control separate spheres thing. And my perspective is part of it is that we're so fixated on the military and what the military is supposed to do. And we don't have as much work on civilians and what civilians are supposed to do. Right. Well, there, and there's two, two big questions come off of that. I mean, one is there's a, there's this paradox that, uh, the, 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 when Huntington's writing about the soldier in the state, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, they're dealing with the issue of, um, how do you keep the military from, uh, from displacing, uh, political leadership, right? So you're worried about the, so in other words, you want the military to stay out of politics because you don't want the military to be doing military coups, which of course Huntington studies in other parts of the world in, in, in other work. And yet paradoxically, I've always thought that when the military begins to look at politicians and politics as something dirty and awful and corrupt, that is exactly the kind of attitude that leads military people to think that they can replace the politicians. And so in a democracy, poli- you know, the military should have a respect for politics because they should have a respect for the system and the rights of their fellow citizens. And so to figure out how we, how we do that, right? So how you keep the, the military to be, a, uh, to be part of, uh, of a world where everybody's a citizen, everybody is free to participate in politics, and that it has value that we are all participating in politics, right? So how do we figure out how to do that? That's the one question. But then the other one um, that you mentioned in the uh, second half of your answer is what kind of training 
or preparation are we providing for civilian leaders? Right. You know, you, you know, got yourself a PhD and have worked in and and have worked within military policy. But you know, we don't have a driver's test for members of Congress or for senators or for presidents or even for secretaries of defense, right? We hope that they they will have had some familiarity with the whole operation, and many of them have. But the idea about you know part of a free society is we don't have um, you know proficiency tests for people who want to get elected or even appointed to important positions, and so how should we imagine if 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 your if your essay the, the essay that I quoted from where I was talking about that civilians should understand more about the military I wholeheartedly agree how are we supposed to arrange that? Well. I'll say first that um, I want civilians to know about the military, but I also want them to take real ownership over politics, yes. which, you know, some politicians absolutely embrace it. Some embrace it in ways that are unhealthy for civil relations, which we can come back to. Um, but I will push back a little bit and say, well, we do have a litmus test or we do have um, some sort of standard we hold um, political actors to on the civilian side, and they're called elections. And But this is why getting at the norms piece of it is both so important and so hard, because norms aren't laws. They aren't legislation. They aren't, they're, they're social rules that we hold each other accountable to. And elections are supposed to be a place where we see whether or not those norms are alive and well. And so that's why CivMil scholars like myself and others keep a pretty close eye on things like, are politicians running for office on the basis of their military credibility, either that they earned themselves through service or that they're borrowing from endorsements from military actors? Um, and um, thinking about those sort of other unhealthy practices. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to back up for a second and and sort of emphasize what you said earlier, which is there's there's politics, which is just a process of decision making and allocating scarce public resources, right? And that process involves debate. It involves uh, institutional practices like elections, like passing legislation, um, executive orders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's just governing politics, right? And it is about power. But it's also about debate and it's about the substance and it's about that resource uh, allocation. Then there's partisan politics and partisan politics are about the power of parties. Um, it's about who gets to run for office, right? It's about who has the money to run for office. It's about the fortunes of particular political candidates that are running on a partisan platform that's associated with a party and an ideology, right? So... Those two things obviously um, interact and cooperate and sometimes are conflated quite a bit, but they aren't the same thing. Um, and this is the important point when it comes to civil relations, the important point when we're thinking about whether or not the military is involved in politics. The military, of course, is involved in governing politics. You know, the defense budget is enormous. And the services each get a slice of that pie, and they are deeply involved in all of the decisions and debates around, you know, where that resources are allocated within service budgets and then, you know, COCOM budgets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's political. 
The uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the principal military advisor to the Secretary of Defense and the President of the United States. He can't sit in the Situation Room and not talk about politics, right? The issue is, are we able to separate partisan politics from the governing politics? Because you don't want the military to be partisan because you don't want the military, you know, the guys with guns, (laughs) to take sides in domestic power struggles. Because that is how you get to a coup. Um, and that that's what we need to start being able to figure out. And in my most recent piece, you know, I'm calling on civilians to really take responsibility for that partisan political piece, um, because that's the main role in civil relations for civilians is to shield the military from that and to figure out how to engage them in the governing politics debates and leveraging the military's expertise appropriately but not involving them in the domestic struggles for political power. Right. I mean, what you've described, right, the, the breakdown of governing uh, and the, the emphasis on partisanship, uh, unfortunately, right, that, that is the background music of American political life for the past 30 years uh, yeah. or so. And so I, I can see the, the argument in general is we should all be trying to uh, find a way to, dis- to distinguish between uh, electoral slash partisan politics and the process of governing, which would mean compromises and all that other kind of stuff. Um, if the civilians can't get that together, it's hard to ask, expect the military to figure that out. Exactly. Um, and related to that is we have a lot of, uh, when you say that, you know, that, that civilians should be trying to engage the military to think about governing, but not about partisan politics. What we actually end up having is the, uh, political parties each vying for the mantle of being better to the military. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've noticed like my, my representative in Congress, lots of other representatives from Congress from both political parties are veterans, right? There's been this wave of veterans coming into the, into elected office. Yeah. And, and because, because one of the arguments is that somehow their military service gives them a certain degree of cachet or credibility that a, mm-hmm. a mere lawyer, PhD, high school teacher, real estate agent, whatever. Medical um, doctor. Medical doctor, (laughs) right? Wouldn't have. Um, And how do we, I mean, because I think about this is the, the, because people will, when we talk about the all-volunteer force, right, people do uh, bemoan the fact that we have fewer and fewer members of the population have military backgrounds. And so therefore in civilian life, right, there's there's fewer and fewer people who understand the military. Um, So is encouraging more military retirees or former military people to go into politics? Is this a structural solution that people should embrace? Or is it something that you know, it can be good in itself because all citizens should serve in, in office? Um, and, but we should not expect electing more former people in the military to Congress is going to solve our civil military relations problems. Yeah, I I agree with the latter. I don't think that electing more veterans to Congress will solve civil relations problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think electing veterans to Congress is a good thing, but it's a good thing in in that are these particular individuals um, bringing other expertise to bear with them as well? Do they have uh, goals that I align with? Um, you know, are they going to be able to, depending on what sort of role they're running for, if they're running for mayor or if they're running for Congress, right? Are they going to be able to operate within that system well? Um, And then I also um, 
so so what I'm saying is I would evaluate them the way I would evaluate any candidate for office, right? Where we get worried is where um, veterans compare or combine their military identities with um, partisan identity. And so if veterans are running for office, arguing that only the Republican Party reflects the military's interests and therefore the interests of national security, right? If they're getting on those sort of slippery slope arguments, that's what's dangerous because then, uh, you know, uninformed viewers might start to think that, well, yes, that, you know, if I vote for Republicans or if I vote for Democrats, Democrats are every bit as um, guilty of doing this as Republicans are, um, then, you know, that's the side that is pro-military. That's the side that the military is comfortable with. It indicates sort of a reciprocity there. Um, and this is the problem with those long lists of general and flag officers who endorse presidential candidates, right? The only reason that that isn't sort of a worse practice is that both sides do it. And so if you're the average American, you look and you're like, well, you know, there's 45 GOFOs, you know, that endorse the Democrat and there's 47 GOFOs that endorse the Republican. And so it looks like the military is as split as the rest of the country, right? Um, but the best case would be that no candidate for office is ever soliciting the endorsement of a member of the military because they have general or admiral in front of their name, right? Because what we don't want to think is that the military itself is a partisan actor that has partisan favorites, right? Because again, that's unhealthy, both from a general democratic perspective, it's also unhealthy for governing. Because if you are a member of the party that does not seem to be as favored, then the trust that is so vital between those senior military leaders and those senior elected and appointed political officials starts out at a deficit. Um, and that's really troubling because you need those parties to be able to hear each other, collaborate. You need civilians to be able to trust the advice they're getting from their military experts. You need the military experts to give the civilians advice in a sincere way. One of the, I think, most troubling findings from Heidi Urban's new book, um, which is called Party Politics in the Post-9-11 Army, is she found that uh, very often um, the senior officers that she surveyed conditioned their views about civilian control of the military on whether or not the president was their co-partisan. So in English, that means if a general identified as a Democrat, and the president at the time was a Democrat, that surveyed officer was more likely to be positive about civilian control of the military. If the president at the time was a Republican, that officer was less positive about civilian control of the military. That's a really disturbing finding, right? I don't want the president to think all the officers are Republicans and I'm a Democrat and so I don't trust them. And I don't want the officers to think well, that president is a Republican and I'm a Democrat, and so I don't trust him, right? right, right. That is poisonous. Alice, we, we've talked a little bit about history, but I want to ask you an unfair historical question. And that is, okay. <laughs> have we ever gotten this balance right? Is there, is there a golden age? This, I, which balance? The civil-military relations. You know, do we have do we have historical periods that we can point to to say the uh, American political leaders and civilian leaders seemed to understand 
civil military relations better at this point? So it's funny, Ron, I was up at Carlisle at the U.S. Army War College uh, two weeks ago now, I think. Um, And I begged the room full of wonderful (laughs) American historians, would someone please write a history of American civil military relations like the Millet book, you know, but just Civ Mill? Um, Because I, I find that question fascinating. For my own research, for my uh, my own book, I looked at the, the sort of founding of the country and the debates that we pulled forward from the British about standing armies, right, where we got this suspicion of, of having a standing military. And I essentially then like skipped the 19th century and get to the post-World War II era when we made the major changes through the National Security Act, right? But um, this room full of wonderful historians had a pretty lively discussion about how screwed up it was in the 19th century. Too. <laughs> um, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right to push me on that because being a Civ Mill scholar, you know, we also for the last 30 years or so have been saying, there's a crisis, there's a crisis. <laughs> and it's like, well, if it's a crisis for 30 years, maybe it's just how the way we live. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but And I'm citing Heidi's book a lot because I just read it, but mm-hmm. she's got this great line in it that I loved about how being a civ mill relations scholar these days kind of feels like being a climate change scientist maybe 20 years ago, right? Where it's really these slow erosions over time that are problematic. And so I think what's hard, it's hard to compare the different eras of American history in part because the structure of the military establishment was so different in the 19th century, right? We did have a pretty tiny military, the Civil War notwithstanding. We had a very small force. It was small all the way up to World War I. We did a pretty big downsizing after World War I. We actually did a pretty big downsizing after World War II at first, but then the Korean War came along. And, you know, we, we've basically been trying to figure out what the right balance is since the National Security Act of 1947 created the Department of Defense and unified the military into one department um, and created the Office of the Secretary of Defense and created the National Security Council. And over time, the budgeting initiative that used to be on the Hill moved over to the Pentagon. And we had much larger military services as bureaucracies than we'd ever had before. And after Vietnam, we get the all-volunteer force, which I think fundamentally changes the domestic political position of the military on purpose, right? It's so we, the theory of it was we can't fight another war without the full support and engagement of the American public, right? Which I think Iraq and Afghanistan showed us wasn't true. Right. I mean, uh, this is, and we're, we're unfortunately, this conversation is great. We're, we're almost to the end, but a couple more things I wanted to hit is actually precisely what you said. The idea of the all volunteer force was we're not going to fight any wars without the engagement of the American people. Well, then that's great because we haven't fought hardly any wars since 1973. <laughs> um, but, um, but instead now we have a situation where the United States is engaged in what I would, you know, as, you know, from my perspective as a historian, is in a, a, a unusual circumstance is you have a republic with a with no universal military service engaged in global uh, long-term military operations with a huge military establishment. We do not have a lot of successful examples. Uh, in fact, I can't think of one. 
of republics with volunteer forces that have been able to engage in uh, sustained military operations over uh, over large swaths of space and time. Right? We are the United States is in so many ways right an experiment. Um, and this is one particular experiment that is potentially very dangerous, right? Because you know this is where we, you know, people start using, you know, hey, do you have a historical example? Well, sure, I can think of Rome, um, but that's not a, that's not a historical example. That's it, it's it's not a perfect analogy, and it also mm-hmm. is not very comforting. And so the question the question I want to sort of wrap up here with is if we recognize, right? Maybe it's not a crisis. Maybe we've just we're sort of facing the, the structural realities of the circumstance we've created. What can or should we be trying to do, either structurally, you have an essay and uh, co-written an essay in Texas National Security Review about structural changes, either structurally or in the way we think about the relationship between civilians and the military? What could we be trying to do to nudge things in a more positive direction, right? Assuming we're not going to change things overnight, we're not going to erase all ambiguities. But what can we do or what should we be thinking about maybe starting to do? To make things yeah, better. this is the million dollar question. Yeah. So the essay in Texas National Security Review with Sharon Weiner um, is about how structural changes actually don't look like they make a great deal of difference in whether or not uh, civilians um, push back on military advice or decide to follow their own counsel as opposed to the military's. Um, and the, the basic reason for that um, is, is politics, is that civilians see aligning themselves with the military as politically advantageous a great deal of the time and or not aligning themselves with the military or opposing military advice is politically disadvantageous, right? So you see this in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. There was a whole, there's uh, several uh, prominent retired military voices um, and then a lot of retired um, sort of mid, mid-level officers as well, really opposing, you know, either the fact of the withdrawal at all or the way it was done. And that's, that is politically costly for a president, right? And so successive American presidents um, tried to sort of split the difference, right? Tried to withdraw some forces, but not all of them. But you saw successive presidents go into office saying, I'm going to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and it was hard and it was politically hard. Um, and so it's really, it's the politics, man. Like <laughs> that, that's what has to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's sort of uh, two big arenas, one of which feels more tractable to me. And the more tractable one uh, is the one inside the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. And so the one inside the Pentagon has to be between the secretary and the chairman and the um, service chiefs and the secretaries. And they have to have really explicit conversations. And the service uh, secretaries, the civilians and the SECDEF have to lead on these conversations because they have to talk about what's partisan right now. What's the difference in the current context between a partisan topic or a partisan take on a topic and a governing politics one? And in many cases, the topic is a governing politics topic, but it is being discussed in partisan ways in partisan circles. And the civilian and military leadership at the Pentagon just has to have really explicit conversations with each other about which is which, and therefore which thing will civilians lead on and which thing will, you know, the military is well within their safe space to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So right now, the big thing is personnel policy. So, you know, is a personnel policy a partisan one or is it just better for the military, right? The army is struggling with its recruitment numbers right now. The conversation is both about how do we recruit more, but it's also about how do we appeal to recruits in this partisan political context, right? That is something I think that, you know, the secretary of the army and the chief of staff of the army have to really know how to talk about in public and have to just be explicit about what do we see as partisan here? What do we see as personnel policy? And the SEC, the SEC army has to talk about the partisan stuff, right? One of the things I say in the, the War on the Rocks article I did recently is about how, um, in general, civilians who run um, the Pentagon have gotten less and less comfortable engaging in partisan politics, but they're political appointees in an administration. So we have to figure out how to do this. And I'm not saying it's easy, but but we just have to be able to engage because the alternative is to just cede territory and retreat. And eventually we're going to run out of room to retreat to. So I think that's that's the starting point is if the secretary and the chairman can get really good at engaging appropriately and dividing that labor well, I think that will have a lot of uh, effect on the rest of the DOD community seeing how it's done, right? right. You so- think about chairmen that were really vocal about civ mill relations, that has an effect, right? Junior folks listen. Um, and so I think that's the place to start. The larger political issues, you know, man, that's the kind of stuff that the American people are going to have to hold politicians accountable for. And that's way bigger than the civil relations context. And so, you know, I do feel a little bit like I, I'm just stuck admiring that problem because I don't, I don't think it's basic to the structure of American government, although you might, you know, be able to make a historical argument about it. Um, But you know, it is basic to our politics right now. And, and that is really what we have to get better at. Right. Cause that's the challenge, right? So you could always say, right. Everything would be better if we all got better. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's, that right. is a universe. You know, as we're both parents, true. that's right. We're both yeah. parents. We know that's always true. Right. Yep. You know, if, yep. if you would be yep. better, things would be better. Make good choices, buddy. I say Make it all the time. Good yeah. Choices. That's what I'm we getting my 15-year-old off to school this morning. Make, make better choices. Um, right. And yet that's the challenge, right? Is we want to make, I guess, we want to make sure that we have the structures right so that when we do get better and make better choices, those better choices will work even better. I guess that's yeah. the, the happy way to think about it. Yeah. And I really welcome folks with good ideas about how to incentivize particularly civilian political leaders to do the right thing in a civ mill context, right? That's just really hard. You know, political incentives are very powerful and, you know, it takes real courage to resist them. Um, and so, and again, it's very tricky because there's, there's political pressure that is democratic, right? right. There's political That's pressure true. that is what your constituents want and your job is to advance their interests. And then there's political pressure that does unhealthy things to the civil military relationship. And making those judgments day in, day out is really tricky. Um, and so I think, you know, sort of nerds like us, one of the services we can do is start thinking through a lot of these scenarios a lot harder than we have before, right? Moving ourselves beyond just talking about principles. Um, 
like I've been snapped at more than once by people like, you know, saying my civ mill principles and them saying, but what am I supposed to do with that? Right. Um, and I think that's a fair critique. And so that's one of the services we can do. So I'm, I'm starting that journey now and I welcome everyone to come with me. Well, excellent, Alice. We will all, we'll get on that train together. Um, we hope that conversations <laughs> like this one might be getting people to start thinking about how to think about these problems so that we can go from admiring the problems to addressing them. Uh, it's it, Certainly it's all going to take time, but we are all out of time for today. Alice Hunt, friend, thank you so much for joining us on A Better Piece to talk about your work. Thank you, Ron. What a pleasure. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs, your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Piece, which you should have done by now already if you really stop and think about it. Um, but after you have subscribed to A Better Piece, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that's how other people can find out about us so that we can continue to grow the community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but I look forward to welcoming you next time. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.